Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we are rewinding way, way, way back to... April the 20th, 2010, and this was episode 420, and yes, we're doing a rewind today, and yes, I said there would be a live show today, and Jack was wrong. Um, just looking at this week, it's going to make a lot of sense for me, getting ready for the party, getting ready for people to come in to run rewinds, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. Wednesday, we already had a guest book for interview. I didn't want to kick that interview out and then push them to the end of the line so we'll go ahead and do a live show Wednesday. I'll have everything ready to roll by then, obviously. And that way I will be available for several uh, close folks who are coming in for the party who will be here at my house and will be doing stuff and things like that. So uh, that's why I'm doing that. But I, I was trying to figure out what to do this morning as far as rewinds. And I was picking some episodes. And I thought, let's just go way, way, way back. And I didn't really have this episode in mind. And I was just going through old episodes from 2010. I just picked random archives to, to chain through, and I, I found this one, and I'm like, oh, that's that's going to be interesting. And I thought, you know, this is so way back, like, if I got something really wrong in this, I might want to make sure that I'm like, hey, I got this wrong. Turns out, I listen, you know, usually when I do rewinds, I don't listen to the whole episode. I might listen to a few minutes here and there. I look at the notes, try to think of, like, some new thoughts for it, and kind of amend this new material at the beginning of it. This one's a prophecy. I listened to the entire thing, and I was honestly, I blew myself away with accuracy. I'm going to tell you, there's probably one thing in here that I got absolutely right, but I got it right more in the way that some of the old science fiction writers would get things right, where they would get the thing right, but the mechanism not exact. And that's going to be toward the end when you hear me talking about cap and trade and carbon credits creating a new currency and all. This has all happened. But... I really thought that they would do it by inflating corporate taxes and then offering a rebate. That was that's how you'll hear me explain it. What they really did is ESG. This this whole carbon credit scheme and all of it is being run through ESG and there's a whole shitload of money I won't get into right now that's being backfed to the companies to play the game right. And there is a massive carbon credits market right now and I think what we really have here is that it's a global scheme with a whole bunch of pesky individual sovereign nations that won't just all get together and sign a UN document and agree to do it all the same way. So you got to come up with something outside the sphere of government that leverages government to get it done, and that's what they did with ESG. But I'm going to tell you, like, so this is, you got to set the stage, right? April 2010, we are in the middle of the Great recession and an attempt by politicians to make you feel very special that you're living through something bad because it harkens back to the great depression and you're now a warrior like your grandpappy or whatever bullshit right this is the same thing they did with the covid this is our nation our generation's great depression Depression. Not that it was a depression, because they dealt out a bunch of free money, but that we had to stand up to it. And now, as you, yeah, you just keeps going. Um, otherwise, this is this is actually frightening for me to listen to this. 
Because I know, I, I think I know what comes next. And what I think comes next all comes from my belief that what you're about to hear was going to occur the way that it did, which makes me feel like, damn it, why am I right again? I do want to give you a little bit of good news. As you listen to this, there's still time and you still have a lot of opportunity uh, to do what you can for yourself. But this should make you take, if you're a new listener and you weren't here back way, 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 way back, 13-odd years ago when we did this, this should give you a little impetus to maybe do the things that I'm talking about doing. And you have to ask yourself, when you hear my advice in this toward the end, what if you had done those things back then? Because I've heard from plenty of you that did, and you're pretty happy with yourselves. Right? Um, but I do think this, is the, this was the last two raw. I think there can be little blips going forward that look good, but the terminal nature of the disease is now here. And it involves, I don't really talk about it here, but it involves the dollar losing its global reserve status. And what I'm going to do today, usually the resources are like the generic ones and any that maybe came from the old episodes, but I've stopped doing the old episodes resource links when they're this old because a lot of the web pages that I referenced aren't online anymore. <laughs> but I'm going to add one here, and some of you aren't going to like it because the source makes you angry. The source is an article that is on dun, 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 RT.com. Yes, yes, yes. It's Russia's propaganda news site. Just like CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News are the United States pro, uh, 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 propaganda websites. Okay? I understand you don't like the source. It doesn't matter. It's an economist, a Russian economist, talking about the decline of the dollar's reserve status. But he says something interesting. It won't happen fast, even from here. It will be a slow loss of the dollar as the global reserve status, and the dollar will remain a significant global currency. I think he's right. His timeline might actually be a little slower than I think, but eh, I'm not always 100%. But I think what you're going to see now is that we've turned this corner, just like I said we would, and you'll hear that in a minute, and there is no way out. There's no way to fix this. If you do a CBDC, which they will do, It gives them more power and control over people, but it doesn't fix the economic underlying problem. You're just making a digital version of the currency you already have that already has the problem. It doesn't make the problem go away. Being able to print more money faster doesn't make the problem go away. The only way I see to forestall this, and I still think this is a high probability, we're getting signals out of the SEC that they're going to approve BlackRock's ETF for Bitcoin. That's not a directly you know, fix the problem or forestall the problem thing in of itself. Look, Bitcoin Go. As the SEC moves toward picking who it will allow to play in the space with the big boy clubs, you also enter into a state where maybe we can get this CBDC thing done quicker, and I've talked about this before. And one way to do that and, and give it the illusion of it's a private market and you don't have to worry about it is to normalize the use of USD-equivalent cryptocurrency, such as Tether, USDC, USDT, etc., right? Some sort of token like that. And to pull that, because we need regulation to protect people underneath the banks. And underneath the banks, and for a bank to participate in that system, they will have to fall under FDIC uh, requirements. If you do this, you effectively give the ability of any citizen in the world with a mobile device, the ability to hold U.S. and transact U.S. dollars with a U.S. bank. 
as though they had an account, even if they only have an account by proxy. So we have Bank of Jackoffville whatever, right, whatever corporate greedy-ass bank creates, like their Tether token, uh, issues those tokens. Even if you don't have an account with them, you have their token and their backing to secure the value of the token. What this would do throughout the world is allow anybody to hold dollars. And as shitty as things are getting, it's still the best, if not one of the best options for a lot of people, and it still has brand recognition, right? So a lot of people don't get how that would be helpful if it happened to the casino game that is the dollar casino that we're all playing in the fiat system with in the United States right now. And what it would do is spread more dollars out throughout the world. There's also a tremendous number of dollars already spread out throughout the world. And increasingly, as we lose reserve currency status in competition with other nations, many of those dollars get repatriated. We need somewhere for them to go. Because when they go out and they get locked up or they're used in external economies, they don't directly anyway affect inflation in the United States. But when they start coming home like chickens to roost, now you're pouring the, the M3 supply domestically, you're accelerating it. So if you can diffuse it and push it out temporarily, you can spread our inflation across a lot of the world, which is an old game, but it's a new way to get the job done. This may be effectively uh, implemented. Because if you think the dollar's in trouble, look at Euro. Okay? I mean, Really? Like, so, if you're a person that doesn't live in one of the fully developed nations, what are your options for currency right now? You're going to hold your native currency unless these smaller nations start to follow El Salvador's lead or pick up the dollar following El Salvador's old lead. You're kind of stuck. You know, if you're holding Turkish currency right now, you're not a really happy person. I mean, Really? You know, in, in, in Lebanon, people are robbing banks to get their own money back from their own banks. And you can just start looking through all of these nations, and individually none of them seem that significant. But collectively, they're a huge percent of the population of the planet. And they are as large as 70% or more unbanked. People just can't get a bank account. And so if you can, by hook or crook, which is a theme you're about to hear from a different angle... Um, get those people to start holding dollars, you can diffuse that inflation globally instead of just having it impact us domestically. It's not a fix, but it is more forestalling. So I'm saying that right now, like I've been telling you in recent episodes, you are in the final stages of the dollar's demise and of global United States dominance economically. That doesn't mean it can't take 50 years to fully play out from here. And honest to God, I know some of you might be comforted by that. Honestly, the faster it can happen, the better. Because when you hit rock bottom, then you actually are forced to take on a new way of rebuilding. Because you can say, make America great again, build back better, whatever bullshit that they spin out. You can do that. And you can be convinced that you know your guy is going to get it done or whatever. But there's no fixing this now. There's no fixing. So if we're going to have... To really start over economically and from a, I mean, a tremendous, I mean, we have to rebuild manufacturing. And it, it, it's literally impossible to do under the current economic system because we won't do it as long as the current economic system exists. 
Uh, here's a little analogy. I'm listening to 1493, which is the, the one that came out after 1491 by the same author. And 1491 was all about, well, mostly about what the Americas were like before Columbus. And this is all about what, what the Americas were like after Columbus. And right now I'm at the part in the book where they're planting massive amounts of tobacco in Jamestown. And they had this period of peace with the local natives that where they were relatively unmolested. And the colony grew and grew, and the colony still eventually imploded. And there were a lot of factors at play with it, one being malaria, which is something we've recently had Doc Moans talking about. But the reality was there was so much money once they'd gotten to that point in tobacco, none of the farmers were growing food. They were relying 100% on imported food. They had not learned how to really live off the land. When they did have conflict with the natives, when they went out to live off the land, they got killed. So they kind of stayed in their walled colonies. At the right times when there was so much at conflict, they couldn't even go out and harvest the crops they were growing. But the big problem they had was when they had this opportunity to grow food, they decided to grow tobacco instead, relying on imported food. And it gets worse. They ended up relying on imported food, but they also relied on, in a way, another type of imported food, domestically imported from the very natives they had adversarial relationships with. As long as we have stuff, we can trade with the natives, and they will give us food. What's the problem? Because they also weren't importing enough food. Does this start to sound like our trade imbalance with China at all to you? Except it's a much smaller location, so it would fall apart faster? Because that's the analogy I'm making if you don't get it. Anyway, so once they realized that Jamestown had a shot at success, there'd been so much money lost... They went out with a decree to the people of England to, to buy shares in the company at a much smaller scale individually, but much larger scale collectively. In other words, they got a bunch of people through guilt to buy into the opportunity. And it was done mostly through the churches. And the, the pastors would literally say, we, we, we owe it to England to make Virginia work. And if we don't, We'll look back and say what fools we were to let it slide into the hands of the incompetent. And it worked, and they poured a bunch more money in. And then a bunch more colonists came, most of who died eventually, because they still didn't grow food. Worse, the captains that were paid to ferry the people across the ocean were paid more to bring people than cargo. So they basically put enough food on the ship to get the ship to the New World, dump these people off, so you had to feed them on the way. Turn the ship around and go back, and they would have enough food for the crew to get back. So all of the opportunity to build up the infrastructure necessary for survival was squandered in the name of the thing that was most profitable the fastest. Whoops! That was a bad deal, and pretty much the whole whatever was left of the Jamestown colony went away. And then new methods of settlement came in after that. Again, does this sound familiar? Does this sound like the fact that we realized during COVID how dependent on China we were. We all knew it, but we really realized it. Like, literally, China can just shut off our ability to manufacture the majority of our antibiotics because we have no way around that. And we can do it. Don't get me wrong. We can do it right now. We can get it done relatively quickly, but it's not relatively quickly from the, the point that it's shut off. We are in the terminal end of this cycle. The only question is how long. There's another interesting thing here. Um, one of the things you'll hear when I'm going through, I do a, there's a lot of 
statistics in this show. So this show is a quintessential Jack Spirico giving you facts and opinion and being very clear about the difference. But when I'm doing the facts part, I talk about 102 or 109, something like that, right around $100 trillion of unfunded liabilities between 2010 and 2050. And then I say, if we don't continue to grow spending, if we don't raise it, like be, this was the best case scenario, a $100 trillion of unfunded liabilities between 2010 and 2050. If you go look at the debt clock right now, it's $192 trillion. Over 13 years, where we should have been like paying some of those bills, right? All kinds of opportunity to fix some shit. In 13 years, the unfunded liabilities to 2050, which is now much closer than it was 13 years ago, almost doubled. Uh, there's no reason, in my opinion, to believe that between 2023 and 2033 it won't double again. You'll be, you'll be looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 trillion if that happens. Oh, we're talking about some real money here. There's no way to put the gear into reverse and get out of this one. It doesn't exist. There is slowing descent only. And this is going to be one of those things that as it happens more and more and more and more, and it comes more and more clear, people go into deeper and deeper, deeper denial. And we will have little pops that look like prosperity, but I don't think we'll ever have a sustained false recovery in this cycle. I don't think it's doable. Now you never know. You know, maybe somebody pretends to be Chris Angel or David Copperfield or some shit and pulls one more rabbit out of the hat. You know, I was the one saying it could be done back during the last big crash. There were plenty of people saying it couldn't back then. I was literally speaking directly in opposition to people like Gerald Salente at this time, what you're about to hear. Our takes were completely different. He's like, this is it? I'm like, no, it's not. And there are quite a few other really big-name counter-economists saying, that we're there. It's done. I'm 13 years older. I'm more crotchety. Everything played out like I said. I'm more subject to arrogance in this realm. Because when you do something well for a long time, you start to become more and more confident in your own predictions. I struggle to make sure I don't let it happen to me. I always try to keep myself humble as possible. And just because you speak with conviction and belief does not mean you're not humble. And the day I stop questioning my accuracy on something this big is the day I probably need to stop podcasting. So I haven't stopped questioning my accuracy. But this is where I'm at. As much as I don't want to believe this... And trust me, I don't. I can't find a reason not to. And I've looked. And the math just doesn't lead anywhere except to doom. And that's why I say I think in some ways we would be better off accepting that the experiment with printing money out of thin air is over. But I do not believe the monetary addicts who are still snorting digital dollars up their nose have hit rock bottom. And I do not believe for an instant that they're ready to go through rehab. And many of them believe, and they may be right, all this misery can come for you, but not for them. 
that they have other means by which to secure their wealth. And they may be willing to ride the damn thing into the ground without realizing that eventually the cost is to all. That's where we are. Now, real quick, I, I don't usually do commercial stuff in these shows. It even says in the canned intro we don't. But I do want to remind you guys about Paul Wheaton's Permaculture Adventure Pack today. Um, the price did go up from 35 bucks to 65 bucks, And I was kind of shocked. Like, a whole bunch of you paid almost twice what you had to pay for it because you didn't buy it all week long last week. And then over the weekend, after the price went up, just like I said it would, it went up. You know what, though? I'm, I'm not faulting you for it because over $500 worth of digital product that teaches you a lot of things that will make it easier for you to deal with what's coming is still a good investment. 65 bucks on $540 worth of stuff, that's a good buy. So there will be a link in the show notes today for that article on RT and for the Permaculture Adventure Pack. And I don't know how long he's going to run it at that price before he jacks the price up or simply stops selling it as a bundle. Uh, I know Paul doesn't keep deals like this around forever. They haven't told me how long they're going to run it. And honestly, this week I'm so concerned with getting other things done, I haven't even asked. So I also will tell you, I do have an item of the day today. And it probably fits in better than editing into the end. And um, it's one that's I've brought it around a lot. I bring it around whenever it goes on sale. I'm a DeWalt guy. A lot of you guys are DeWalt guys. They have their cordless jigsaw as a bare tool on sale today. So if you're not on the DeWalt platform already, um, it's probably not something you want to buy, right? But if you already have chargers and batteries, this is a $205 tool. And it's on sale today for $110. So that's $95 or 43% off. DeWalt sales don't last. They always go away. And the reason I think this is really a great deal to pick up, there's a lot of people out there with plenty of batteries, plenty of chargers, drills, drivers, sawzalls, etc. A handheld jigsaw is generally one of the last tools people get unless they buy a kit with all the tools in it and it came with it. And it stands to reason because I reach for my drill like weekly, minimum. When I'm doing project work and stuff, it's daily. Uh, I reach for my Sawzall all the time, my impact driver all the time. Even a skill saw, right, I use more than a jigsaw. But there's things you need a jigsaw for that you just, nothing else really does well. And there's a lot of things that a jigsaw is better for, but you can get by using another tool. So it tends to be that one we put off to last. This is a, a, a long-term, I was going to say lifetime. I don't know that anything electronics is a lifetime investment anymore, but... Man, I've, I'll tell you what, I've got a DeWalt drill with an adapter on it so I can use the modern batteries that I picked up off the street in 1998, and it still works. So when DeWalt says they build tools to last, they build tools to I'm going to say it again. 1998, I picked it up off the road. It must have fell off some contractor's truck. It had a 625 hardline coring tool in it for coring hardline cable TV line. I even tried to figure out, like, I drove around and, you know, would ask me, did anybody lose any tools? I wasn't going to say, hey, is this yours? And nobody, so I, I brought it home and added it to my set. I was at the wall guy. I'm like, this is great. I still have that drill. <laughs> I still have a drill I picked up off the street in 1998. So DeWalt builds quality stuff. So remember... Uh, when these deals come around from DeWalt, pick them up. Remember, you can always help support what we do with your online shopping at tspaz.com. Now, let us go back in time, 13 years and a couple months, 
Episode 420, nice mellow number for a mellow week. What will the false recovery look like? Originally first published on April 20th, 2010. It is a Tuesday, and what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about what this false recovery I've been talking about for a year and a half now or longer is actually going to look. I've been uh, I've been saying there, you know, before the crash, I told you it was coming. I said protect yourself, and I said that in the lull of this thing, it'll look really bleak, and people will be forecasting we're going over the end, and it won't be time yet, and that there would come a time when the United States would go through what I've been calling a false recovery, that things would look good, confidence would be restored, and everything would continue as though nothing ever was wrong, and uh, praise would be, would be sounded. And that at the end of that, the second crash would come into that double-dip recession and take us down into a true depression, and we would actually experience what people are forecasting uh, as far as the crash, except that there would be this blip in the middle. So today I decided to talk to you about the why I think that's going to happen, what's behind it, what it might look like, and the reason that I think it's important that we expect this. And we protect ourselves as though it's not going to happen. I want you to understand before we get into the topic at all today, I'm not saying that good times are coming back. I'm saying the illusion of good times will return. And the only reason that I'm telling you this is so that you don't fall into it when it happens and you stay prepared for the worst because I don't know when exactly that will come, but we have not seen the worst out of this ride yet. And as I said, what we're going to be talking today about is what I'm calling a false recovery. And if I'm going to talk about a false recovery, I need to be very honest about the fact that I could be wrong. And there's people out there that are saying I'm wrong right now. Some of them are some pretty big names. Among them, Mark Farber, uh, and I would even say Peter Schiff is more along the thought processes of Salente than, than me. So these are people that spend their life researching this stuff. And here I am coming up and saying they're wrong. And I'm not really saying they're wrong. I'm saying that they're missing a middle event. What all of these people are forecasting is this big drop on the other side. Make no mistake about it. I'm not saying that that dump isn't coming. All I'm saying is that I believe that there's a, an event in the middle that these people don't want to go on the record with, whether they see it or not. I don't know whether. I don't pretend to speak for any of them. But let me put it to you this way. When you're in the public light, it takes a lot of guts to go out and make a definitive prediction like, we're going to have a false recovery before the next drop. It's actually very easy to say that we're going to have a second recession, a double dip. You know why? Because it could take 10 years to happen. You can go back and say, see, I've been saying it for 10 years. Okay? But when you're already down and you're, you're saying you're going to go down further than where you are, you're leaving the middle out, you give yourself a lot of kind of a fudge factor there. Predicting what's going on in the middle takes a little bit of guts, I'm willing to do it because I'm not saying buy this or sell that. I'm just saying beware. And I'm open to being wrong about this. And I want you to realize something today. I'm going to give you some facts and figures, numbers, statements, quotes, things like that. When I do that, that's fact. Right? When you hear me say, for instance, uh, we'll talk about this in a bit, but the inflation rate between 1980 and 1990 was 58.6%. And that's a real number. It's a hard number. I got it from an inflation calculator. That's fact. A lot of what I'm going to give you today is my, my opinion based on my understanding of economics and my understanding of history. It's okay 
if you don't agree with me. It's okay if you listen to Gerald Salenti than me. Believe me, I understand why that might be the case. But here's the issue. I'm not telling you to do anything differently than they are right now. Okay? All I'm saying is, if this recovery comes along, don't think those experts are wrong. Their result is just being delayed by a middle event. I'm more concerned with protecting you so that if a year and a half from now, all of a sudden things are really starting to pick up and we're looking at the Dow crossing 12,000 points or more, which I think could happen. We're starting to see new home starts come up. We're starting to see a lot of other things going on, and I'll give you my reasoning those could occur going into 2011-2012. I don't want you to forget everything you've learned here at the Survival Podcast and from the surrounding community and surrounding communities over the last year and a half during this really hard time. I don't want you to throw that out. This is a preemptive strike. If I could you know, phrase it any other way, I would. But that's really what this is. This is. I think this is going to happen. And when it does, don't bite the hook. And if I'm wrong, you won't have to worry about it. But let's examine it and see what we can learn today. There is something we have to really take into context. That generally, in a, what I call a microwave society today, where we shorten everything, we don't get context properly anymore. Every time you hear somebody talking about the current recession or depression, depending on what, how much guts you have and what you call it, we always go back to 1929. And we say this is the worst since the Great Depression. And then we start drawing, drawing for alternative people that don't try to like prop things up and make them sound better than they are, if we're the Salentes, the Farbers, whatever, we start talking about how 1929 looked really bad, started to look a little bit better, and went down in that second hockey stick. And we take today's hockey stick of down and up, and we say, okay, well, the other drop's coming. There's our context in history. But here's what we forget. There wasn't a single depression in the 1920s. There were two. There was what was known as the Depression of 1921, which really lasted from about, they say 1919 through 20, part of 1921, but I'll tell you what, it really lasted from, we were still in World War I, 1917, through the middle 20s. In fact, I'm going to prove to you today conclusively that the Roaring Twenties weren't exactly the Roaring Twenties. That there's some misunderstandings about that. We'll do that with hard numbers here in, in just a second. But what I'm saying is we have to, if we want to understand the context of history, then we need to go back into around 1900 and we need to look at the panics and created in 1900, the creation of the Federal Reserve, the slight inflationary pull that we had from 1913 into the mid-teens of the World War I, the depression after World War I, the perceived recovery of the 20s when things really didn't get that much better except in the stock market and for wheat farmers, the second big depression, 1929, as the wave came down again, the, the false recovery in the center of the depression and then the big crash and then the stagnation going all the way forward into World War II. And that context and that timeline is a much longer timeline if we want to overlay it to present day. We also have to understand some other things that were true then that are not true now. From 1913 uh, all the way up in, in through the 30s and even in, in the World War II, 
Well, the Federal Reserve did come into place. While our currency did get converted from money into currency that had debt applied against it, and we did begin to go into debt, our debt load was much lower in the 20s and the 30s. In the 20s and 30s, we didn't really owe anybody much of anything yet. We were just in our dating phase with the Federal Reserve and the, the devaluation of the money based on separating it from the gold standard. Even after Roosevelt did the gold seizures, and we said you're not, you can't own gold anymore except for small amounts of collectibles and things like that, and the currency was no longer backed by gold, it was still backed by a portion of gold. And that remained in place all the way up till 1975. Remember, our coin money in this country was actual silver up until 1964. One major dynamic that's changed between the two timelines. Okay? The other dynamic that's changed between the two timelines is what the economy of the United States was based on. All through the 20s and 30s, in spite of the fact that we began our move towards service-based economies, we were an agricultural and manufacturing society. And that was true through the 50s and 60s. Right? It wasn't until we started printing money out of thin air in the 70s and went through that recessionary period that we really divested ourselves from being a country that made and produced things. Not that we don't make and produce anything today, but if you look at our output, our output is primarily based on things like financial services today, marketing services. Okay, We've gone to a point where we're not building anything. We need to realize that those two dynamics make things entirely different. I, I want to go over with you something that I think might shock you right now. I want to talk about some perceived good times, at least in our nostalgic view of them now, and some perceived bad times, and I want to compare what inflation looked like when things were supposed to be really good versus when things were supposed to be really bad. Let's start out with a period that I think Americans would agree, except for the very tail end of it, and the things that led to the downfall of George Bush the first and the rise of Bill Clinton, that 1980 through 1990 was a good period of time for the United States. Ronald Reagan came in at the tail end of the, the recession from the 1970s, which really lasted the entire decade. We just couldn't get things together. People were down on America. People were saying the same things they're saying today. Capitalism is over. It's dead. It's failed. What can we do? Ronald Reagan came in and really inspired the nation, in spite of the fact that I think that we... We underestimate how many additional taxes that man brought to this nation. We don't get how much more taxation Reagan brought to the United States um, when he was perceived as a great tax cutter. He moved the taxes around. Um, it was a good decade. Things started to turn around. People were getting employed. Wages were increasing. Everything looked good. The real estate market was going up. We had a hiccup in 1987, but we recovered from it almost overnight. You know, if you could have bought stock the day after the crash in 1987, you could have made a fortune. It came back very, very quickly. But if you had $1,000 in 1980 and just put it in a dresser drawer, to buy the same stuff with that $1,000 at the end of the 80s, in 1990, you would have needed $1,586. So basically, somebody stole $586 from you, is the way you can look at it. That inflation rate was 58.6% in the 1980s, a period of time that was considered uh, beneficial to the United States, a, a good period of time. 1990 to 2000, the decade of Bill Clinton, uh, no matter what you think of Bill Clinton, most people will say, hey, you know what, when it came to the economy, the guy did a pretty good job. 
There was a big roar in the technology sector. There were roars everywhere. Everything was going great. The stock market was going up, up, up. People were getting wealthy overnight. People were retiring at 45 instead of 65 if they got into the right company at the right time with the right stock options and were throwing enough money into the 401k. It was a great time. Well, if you had $1,000 in 1990, actually, there was less inflation in the 90s, but it was still significant. In 2000, you would have needed $1,317. That's an inflation rate of 31.8% from 1990 to 2000. 20, 2000 to 2010, we had that stock market bubble in the middle, a real estate bubble in the middle, and then down the other side. And we really probably look at 2000 to 2010 now as a pretty bad time in America. But what was our inflation rate? Well, our inflation rate from 2000 to 2010... If you started out with $1,000 in 2000, you say you would need $1,263. So our inflation rate went down from the 90s, but it's still relatively high. 26.4% was the inflation rate from 2000 to 2010. When I say, okay, let's pin it down to uh, the last two years, the worst period of time in the 2000s, 2008 to 2010, that's where we should see inflation drop, and it's down to 1%. But we're still inflating during this perceived down period. And it is a down period. And we, we can't deny that. But what I mean is we're not perceiving it accurately if we're trying to correlate it back to the recession of the 70s or the Great Depression. And dynamic differences here, and I know figures aren't some of your, your biggest things, folks, but hang with me. This is going to make a dramatic impact on you if you'll pay attention and focus here about correlating today and 1980 through 2000 with previous downturns and why there's a big difference. Let's take another, let's take a long look at history. 1980 to 2010. So in 1980, you took $1,000 and stuck it under your mattress. Today you pull it out in 2010. To buy the same stuff today that you could have bought with it in 1980, you would need $2,614. That's inflation from 1980 to 2010, 164%. 164%. That's a lot of inflation over 30 years. That's a lot of devaluation of your money. Basically, you've lost, what is that, about 70% of your money's value. Okay, that's that's a, that's a tough pill to swallow. Now let's start comparing though that period of time to other periods of times. The recession of the '70s was bad. It was when we went off the last vestiges of the gold standard under Nixon in 1975. We had Jimmy Carter come in, and the guy couldn't handle money uh, if it was if it was stapled to his forehead. Uh, one of the worst economic managers in the history of the world was Jimmy Carter. You can think whatever you want about his social outreach and stuff like that. And i got to admit, there's some things the guy is for that i got to go, man, good for him. But the man should have never been allowed to touch a dollar in his life. He was like a poison pill for money. Uh, well, and, and, you know, Nixon didn't do a great job with the economy either, if you think I'm bashing Democrats, and neither did Ford. Looking from 1970 through 1980... $1,000 in 1970, you would have needed $2,123 in 1980. That's an inflation rate of 112% over 10 years. That's the other kind of recession. That's where the, the people don't have money, the people don't have jobs, but the cost of living keeps going up and running away from them. We haven't had that this time. 
What we've had is a very stationary, low inflation rate that's held everything together. Now let me drive it home for you. From 1930 to 1940, during the height of the Great Depression, before the industrial uh, uptick from the World War II, we had an inflation rate. Are you ready for this? We had $1,000 in 1930. You only needed $832 to buy the same amount in 1940. That means the inflation rate was a negative 16.2%. In other words, if you just took your money and put it under your mattress over 10 years from 1930 to 1940, you got a 16% return on your investment. The value of your money went up. 1920 to 1930, remember I told you there was a recession or a depression, depending on what you want to call it, from around 1918 through 1921. And I said the roaring 20s weren't quite the roaring 20s that everybody cracks to be. $1,000 in 1920, it's almost identical to 1930 to 1940. You only needed $835 in 1930 to buy the same thing 1000 would have bought. It's another 16% return, 16.5% to be exact. So what do we learn about this? Why did I go through all this with you? Because what we learn is that during the Great Depression and the previous depressions to that, and you can go all the way back to 1913 with this inflation calculator. I'll give you a link so you can play with it today. It's really cool. You'll see that the value of money went up from 1913 all the way through 1940. Money got to be worth more even though we were in our initial dating phase with the Federal Reserve and turning our money into debt. Why was that the case? Because we were in a true depression that didn't last from 1929 to 1941. We were in a depression that lasted from about 1900 through about 1941. And that's the reality. And all of the good times, the roaring 20s, and everything else in the middle, where things looked better, were never the end of that depression. And the value of money got stronger. Why? Because there was less money available. Because people were sitting on their money. And we had a huge roar after the war, because the money got released and pushed into circulation. Things are different now. Things have changed now. The people who are holding money now are different. In 1935, the people holding money were you and me. They were holding whatever we could get our hands on and only spending it when we absolutely had to. Today, you and me spend money before we have it, even during a depression. That's why there's still inflation. Who the money today? The banks are the ones holding the money today. Somebody recently sent me a story explaining how we couldn't have runaway inflation when people started spending because the American individual is no longer holding enough money to make that happen. They're right. But yet we have more money today than there has ever been at any time in history. More cash, more dollars are out there. The M3 is higher than ever before. So why isn't the money flowing? Where is the money? It's sitting in banks in their computers, and it's not being lent right now. Even though they said they, the bank, remember Bush told us the banks had frozen up lending? Well, the lending is still frozen. It's just not as frozen as it was. It looks better, but it's still pretty hard to get a loan right now for a lot of folks. Folks that probably could pay the loan back, still tough. 
And a big part of why is because a lot of very, very wealthy people are holding gold right now. They're holding on to gold because it's a great inflation hedge. They're waiting for the inflation. But what's happening? The inflation isn't showing up. Not yet. Where is it? Is it gone? Has the Fed won the battle? Has inflation gone away? Oh, no, inflation hasn't gone away. It's out there, and it's waiting. And it's waiting for the money to flow. To have inflation, dollars or wherever country you're in, and their, you know, whatever their currency is, has to move. It has to move, and it has to keep moving. It can't move from one place to another and stop. It's got to go from one place to another, be held and respect, and held and respect. That hasn't happened yet because a lot of people that generally play that game, the high rollers in the pyramid casino that is the United States economy, have cashed in a lot of their chips and purchased things like gold and silver and raw land, real estate, and futures and commodities, and they're holding them. And they're waiting for the initial stages of inflation. We have had people out there to like Weimar Republic where you're going to have triple digit inflation every other day. Not going to happen under the current system. Not yet. These folks are waiting for that inflation to start kicking in when we go through a year with like 15, 16% inflation. So that the value of their chips is worth more in currency. In other words, the price of gold versus not, not the price of gold versus dollars. But what a dollar will buy, they'll take it either way. Inflation can run up, value of gold goes up, and it exceeds the inflationary delta. In other words, the price of goods goes up, but there's a magnified move in the commodity. Whether it's gold or land, it doesn't matter what it is. In other words, the value of the commodity exceeds in growth the value of inflation. They beat it. And when they beat it by enough, they start cashing it in for chips, which are what? Dollars. Why? So they can play in the casino again which, of course, is the conventional investments except the ones that you don't play with. Options, hedges. So they need currency to play in the casino. You understand this. Gold is a store of value, but it is not spendable as currency in our modern economy. There's very few places you can walk in and hand somebody a gold bar. They'll make you change in some silver and give you a product. And you damn sure can't go to the stock market and buy stock with gold. You have to convert the gold. So eventually what you'll see is a dip in the gold price. When? When these people start dumping it. And other commodities start being dumped. And at the same time they're dumping it and driving the prices down, and converting it to a currency that's created an inflation delta, they'll take the currency and they'll use it to buy back different commodities. This gets money flowing. This creates the illusion of recovery, and it's starting to happen now. Let's face it, you have had a period from 2000 and, uh, from, let's look at uh, 2006, all right, from 2006 to 2010, about four years, uh, gold has gone from a uh, $650 to $700 price range up to 1200 bucks. It's doubled in value. What was our inflation rate during that period? 8%. We've got a 100% gain in gold and 8% gain in inflation. The people holding the gold have beat inflation big time. The, and they've had depreciation in real estate, one of the main commodities that can be purchased. It's starting to happen. 
the people holding the money, which is gold, silver, and other commodities, are exchanging the commodities that appreciated, buying the casino chips and going in and using the differential to purchase other commodities at a discount. Again, this leads to the perception that the economy is recovering. Why do we hear the economy is recovering right now? Because the unemployment has stopped growing by much. Not because it's gone down. It's stopped growing. Bottom out. In a stock trader's world, what they're saying is we've hit a hard floor. Right? You look at certain stocks, and you see that over a period of time in his point, which any time you know, a stock goes down to, let's say, 25 bucks a share, there are so many buyers for that stock at $25 a share, it doesn't go through it. If it does, it's for a day. And people jump on it at 24. And we saw stocks that did that right through the depression. How much did Walmart go down during the, uh, the, 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 during the recent recession? How much did Toyota go down during the recession? Not, not, be careful. Not after they had problems with their brakes. From 2007 to 2009, what happened to Toyota stock? Did it go down like GM or Ford or you know, anybody else? These were companies, what about Google? Google went up and down, up and down, but it had a hard floor. There's a lot of stocks like that. And what the economists are looking at the nation right now is saying is basically we've hit a hard floor. We've hit a point where labor is so cheap and money is so cheap. It's so cheap to borrow if you can. And it's so cheap to hire people if you can that anybody with money or the ability to borrow money is using it to make money right now through business. And it's happening. And, and, and those are the, the normal mainstream economists that are saying the recovery is here. That's what they're basing on it. The floor's been reached. And once the floor has been reached, the rebuilding starts. But they leave out the other stuff that I told you, inflation versus deflate, what the past looked like, what the current situation is, and where the money is right now. And how the money is going to be, again, converted into currency. I know it's hard for people to grasp that. When I say convert money to currency, I mean that people that are holding commodities, specifically gold and silver, are taking that and selling it at this inflated price that's been created during this period of time, during this panic, converting it to currency, but they don't hold the currency. No one wants to hold currency in the world of the wealthy. They want to leverage it as quickly as possible and dump the risk as quickly as possible. Creates currency flow. Right? What comes next is a point at which that flowing currency starts to trickle down. Remember, trickle down economics into the hands of the common man. Through what? Well, we've got to get these guys a return of investment. So we start going back into finding new ways to do credit card debt. We start finding new ways to do zero financing that's not really zero financing by inflating the underlying cost so that the interest is built into the payment. So you go in to buy a new, a new couch and a new table and everything, so a new set of living room furniture. And the price says for dollars, and the guy says, but look, dude, it's, it's, it's no problem at all. Use our money. It takes three years to pay it off, zero percent. Now, if you go three years in one day, it goes up to like 29 percent, but you know, you three years to pay it off. But the reality is that $2,100 is not the price of the commodity. It's possibly $1,100. You went in and said, look, I want to pay cash. I want your bottom price on this. You might get it for $1,200, $1,300. They'll probably never show you the true bottom. But you can negotiate way down if you walk in with cash. Into any kind of special furniture, anything. I'm giving you an example. So 
All of this money, credit starts to free up. Even with low interest rates, it's still very profitable credit. We've just moved the profit. Just like you take a, a balloon like you make animals out of. You know, a long balloon that you make, and make a balloon animal out of, you squeeze one end. So you narrow down your profit. What happens to the other end of the balloon? It expands. So money's still in there. These guys aren't in business for charity, folks. So people start spending money. And they start going, well, you know what? It's not costing me anything. So now they start to borrow again. The economy starts to pick up pace. Jobs start to get created. What do people who have been out of work for a year or two years do when they get a job? Well, for a couple months, they say, man, we've learned our lesson, right? We've learned our lesson. We're going we're gonna to do the right things from here on out. We're going to save our money. We're not going to go deeply into debt again. We're going to be careful this time. We're going to work really hard. I'm going to get every extra hour I can. We're going to pay off the debt load that we've picked up. And maybe they pay off a little bit of the debt that they've picked up. They get out of that expensive house they couldn't afford. They get into an apartment or a smaller house. And one day, they realize they've paid all their bills for the month, the first time in ever, and it feels good. And do you think they say, now we have opportunity to grow? Our internal asset value? No. You know what they do. They go, you know what, let's go out and have a big steak dinner. After all that, kids and kids and wife, we've earned it. I've worked really hard to get us back to where we are. And it's the first step. And I'm not saying it's a bad decision. Hey, I've gone out and had some celebratory meals myself. Hopefully I'll have a lot more in the future. But for a lot of people, it's like the guy that kicked the drug habit, and he says, eh, you know what, I'm out of the party, I'm being sociable, just one drag off the joint. That's all it'll be. And maybe that night that's all that it is. But it brings back that euphoria that the person felt before. Hey, remember, you know what? The economy wasn't our fault. We paid all our bills when I had my job. I've got a job again. This The future looks bright. The future looks great. And the band starts to play in the guy's head. And all of a sudden, the money starts to flow. And it's happening in millions of homes throughout America over the next couple of years. That's my forecast. And the stupidity reigns supreme because it's more comfortable than intelligence. And what the experts are saying, the alternative experts, the Zelentis, the Farbers, right? The, 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 you know, all of these guys, Rogers, is that we can't do it again. The debt ceiling is too high. There's too much money owed. We can't increase it any further. We don't have to increase it. We just have to make what already has been done flow. They talk about the stimulus running out. The stimulus is not running out. Half of the stimulus money hasn't even been spent yet. It's just starting to be released into the make-ready projects, right? The shovel-ready projects. Right? A lot of it just came out in income taxes, the make-work-pay income tax credit, right? 800 bucks a family. That's extra money. The people that aren't working are going to use it to pay bills to stay in their house for, or stay in an apartment, right? Stay in their, some of them stay in their cars. But the people with money, the vast majority of them aren't going to put it away. They're going to blow it. And it's going to keep coming. And there's some other things that are coming that people don't understand the direct impact of. One, government revenues, if you want to call it that, I call it their theft, is about to go way up. Why? We're about to start paying more money for health care. We're, we're going to start paying taxation based on health care. We're going to start paying taxes to fund health care. And we're going to do that for four years before any of the goodies get released by the government back in. 
before any of the help. So the government's going to collect money for four years and say, look how good the balance sheet looks. And it'll still look like crap, but it'll look better. It's like a CEO that comes into a company where the stock price is down 50 points. And he rebounds it to where it's only down 40 points. And when he goes in and he makes his presentation to the board, he says, hey, look where it was when I took over. Look where it is now. And it's a straight line up. You pull the graph back and you see that it's a little, it's a little bump. What about the other 40 bucks? Oh, we'll get there. And if it goes up the next quarter, another $2, man, he starts to look like a hero. Even though the company is still well undervalued. That's what is happening with our economy. And all it takes is confidence of the stupid with money to unleash it. Healthcare is going to be part of that. That's why it was so important to them. Do you really think it was because they cared about you because you were sick? If you're on one side of the debate, if you're on the other side of the debate, do you really think it's so they could exterminate you the way Alex Jones says for eugenics? No. It's about money, and it's about the control of money, and that's all it's ever been about. If you control money in a society based on a currency, you control everything. And there's a ton of money in the healthcare system. It is a money they don't care if it has a negative or a positive effect on the healthcare system. They really don't. As long as the people think it's positive and let them do it, they'll get what they want, control of the money. The other thing that's going to happen that's going to put a lot of money into circulation, more money than has ever circulated ever in the history of mankind, create the new biggest fake commodity on the planet, is cap and trade. Cap and trade will come, it will happen, and I've already forecasted this, I'm going to do it again today for those who missed it. Cap and trade will probably never at this point pass as a tax. Let me say it again, cap will probably never at this point pass as a tax. Sort of. Here's what's going to happen. The Republicans are going to make big gains this year because people are pissed off and they said, Democrats fix it, and it's not fixed. So, they're angry at the Democrats. Now, will they take over the House and Senate? I don't have any idea. I'll tell you, I would lay odds about two to one that the House gets taken over by the Republicans um, this next election period. I don't think it's going to be a big deal to me and you, but I think a lot of people will be like, oh, yeah, look what we did, right? Uh, and it'll probably get taken over by a, a, a small majority, you know, maybe six seats uh, majority, somewhere in that range, or if they don't, they'll be so close that it won't matter, right? You, you might still have Pelosi around, and she might still control the committee assignments and all, but you'll have a House of Representatives that's, that's so close to a 50-50 uh, lock uh, that, that just by turning one or two from either party, uh, you'll be able to block things. The Senate... I, I think it's dead even odds whether it's a Democrat or a, uh, a Republican majority at the end. There's only a third of the seats up for re-election, but you're going to see a gain, and you're going to see a Republican gain. And you're going to see, now we need to see what that did for us. So we're going to have to take some of these real problems that have been created over the past 30 years and start to do something about them. And one, of course, is we have to save the earth. Even the vaulted leader of the Republican Party that ran for Republican presidency last time, John McCain, says, Hey, friends, uh, the earth is warming up. So we have to save the earth. We have to save it in a way Republican-friendly. Right? Republicans hate tax increases. At least most of them. 
at least obvious tax increases, really, really do. Can't love to be able to say they've cut taxes. Democrats, sort of the same. Love to be able to say they've cut taxes for certain people, but raised them for others. Republicans want to say, we've cut taxes for everybody. So how do you do that and get cap and trade through? I, I'll put it this way. It will be done by hook or by crook, and watch out for the hook. All right? The crook was the first way. We'll just take it. We'll just start imposing penalties on companies that exceed an allowance that we'll create out of thin air and tell them what they have. And when they fail to meet the, the bogey, they can either pay us and credits from people who have saved and gone under their bogey. So the cap and trade is going to work like this, folks. I'm Jack's Widgets, and you're Tom's Widgets. We both have an allowance for 10 carbon credits. Don't focus on the numbers. Arbitrary. It doesn't matter. I only use five of mine this year. You use 15. You now owe the government $200,000 in fines. I have five extra ones. Okay? And I know it's going to cost you $200,000. I don't need mine. They don't do anything. I can't carry them the next year. Okay? Because I'm on a trading company. That's going to happen. They're going to be able to be carried, but only by trading companies like the ones by Al Gore. So I say, hey, you know what? Jack's Widgets has five extra. Tell you what I'll do, buddy. I'll sell them to you for $100,000. And you say, why the hell would I pay you $100,000 for nothing? Except these random carbon credits. I say, because they're not nothing. Because I know that you owe the government two hundred grand, and you'd rather give me a hundred than them two hundred. So you buy my credits. And something that was nothing, nothing but a materialistic, it wasn't even materialistic, a nebulous concept of emissions of carbon has now become a commodity and traded. And that's how they tried to do it the first time. Here will be the Republican solution, and they will sell it to the people, and the people will love it. They will eat it up, and they will not understand that it was the plan all along. Because if you tried to do this first, people would have objected. But when you provide it as a solution to cap and trade, people will love it. This is what they will do. They'll say, instead of finding companies that exceed their carbon allowance, we will offer a tax incentive for companies that, fit, that, that, that go below the number we set for them. So now what they'll say is, Jack, tell you what. You, under your allowance, we gave you 10, you only did 5, you get a tax break. Okay? Tom will be sitting over there, and now he doesn't get his tax break. So let's say his entire tax liability is a million dollars this year. It's a fairly large company. It's a million dollars in taxes. But he could get a 20% tax deduction if he were under his allowance. So that would save him $200,000. Now, I will still sell him my five extra credits for 100000 because it still saves him $100,000. But nobody had it. And once it's done, what you do is you sneak in the back door and you quietly jack up 1% or 2% the corporate tax rate to effectively get the tax penalty onto businesses, including businesses that would have never had the penalty in the first place because they're not even part of the thing because they're too small and they don't produce any carbon. Now, why does this key in on the false recovery? Because once this happens... We have a new thing to print casino chips with. 
This is the hard part for people to understand. Since money is lent into existence, any underlying commodity, whether real or fictitious, that produces more money allows us to lend more money into existence. You have to have stayed in touch with the show for the past week to get that, I guess. If you don't understand that, real, as quick as I can make it to keep the show in time today, when you put money in a bank, they loan 90% of the money you put in the bank. When the person gets the loan and puts it back in the bank, they loan 90% again, and $10,000 deposited by one person ends up resulting in a bank holding $100,000 with a 9 to 1 fractional reserve ratio. So what happens when we start creating money with the stroke of a government pen in the form of carbon credits, and we use the hook, and the Republicans come to the table after taking over or getting very close, and John McCain pulls up to the microphone and says, friends, we have a solution. We need to solve the problem of global climate change. Because it's not warming anywhere, remember? Anymore, right? Now that, now that the temperature is not doing what it's supposed to, now it's, it's climate change. And we know that there's pollution. Whether you believe in global warming or not, we know that there's pollution. We, there is pollution. It's not carbon. It's a thousand other chemicals being dumped into our atmosphere and into our soil and into our water. But we're going to focus on carbon. Why? That's why it's perfect for this scam. Okay? So, what we do is we set up this whole scenario where these carbon credits can be traded. And the American people look at this and go, how could we be against this? It's a tax break for companies that do the right thing. And the carbon trading scam happens anyway. And the money flows. And the recovery rages. And then what happens is people start even cashing in more and more of the money to buy chips. The gold or other commodities converted into currency so they can play the new... So they can make one big last run before they pull all their chips off the table and cash them in and quietly exit before you hear the giant flush of the toilet and this country goes into the biggest depression that it's ever seen, not since the Great Depression. And we start to see money inflate to a point where it becomes worthless. So I think that Farver and Rogers and Salenti and all these people are right. They're just missing the middle. Today I've made my case to you why I think that is going to occur. My last part of it is political party. You know, what is a political party? Well, we've been led to believe that a political party is the Democrats or the Republicans or Libertarians or Constitutionalists or Socialists or Communists. You know, a political party. No, no, no. A political party is what goes on every day in Washington, D.C., where a bunch of fat cats get together at our expense. They hang out in this place called the Capitol, and they pass laws that tell us what to do, and they party while they're doing it. They party because as they exit the Capitol through their little underground parking garage, if they happen to be in a car that day and they need some gasoline, they fill up with it at our expense. They have health care. They have a health club there. They have their own barbers. It's like a great party. You go there, and you just hang out, and you, you make laws, and everything you could possibly need is taken care of. You know, if you live across the country and you happen to be a ranking member of the Senate of the House, you get your ass in a G5 jet and you fly home every weekend to California like Nancy Pelosi does. And you get upset when you can't have a G5, you only get a G4. That's the party. 
And these guys and these women that are running our country today are like a bunch of drunken sailors at a party. It's exactly what it's like. And you know what they never want? They don't want the party to end. They might take a nap. They might go home and sleep it off for a while, but they want to come right back up and start partying tomorrow. So, if they want to party tomorrow, they have to restart the machine. Now, just like the rock star that keeps partying or just the random person keeps partying, you're destroying the party. You're destroying the ability to party. You're ruining it because you're killing your body as the party goer. Right? You're, you're poisoning it with alcohol and drugs and abuse and not enough sleep and smoke and, 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 and just being worn down and being in risky behavior. But the party's more important than the risk. So you do anything until eventually it crashes at the end. And as long as there is the ability to keep the party going, the party continues to go. So if we want to look at this right now and look at the political party, the great big party of fat cats up there on the hill, and say, will the party end? Well, the party won't end until they can't keep it going. They will be like Malcolm X, by any means necessary to keep the party going. Because if they can keep it going long enough, they get to the point where they get to leave the system, and they have everything taken care of, at least in their heads for the rest of their lives, with a retirement program that most Americans would absolutely kill for, with lifetime health insurance, and half of the laws that they've passed either don't apply to them or don't affect them. So when we look at another recovery before the final collapse, the only question we have to answer for ourselves, and I mean absolutely the only question that we must answer for ourselves, is very simply, is it possible to keep the party going and to restart the band at least one more time. Is it possible? As long as it's possible, they'll do it. The only time we will reach the end, the final abyss, the final drop-off, is when they can't start the band again. What Salenti's saying, what Farber's saying is, we've, we're there. Can't do it. I'm telling you that you're not looking, if you're these people, at the next game. The next gimmick. What they're saying is the gimmicks can't go on forever, and they're right. But have we reached a point where the gimmicks no longer work? And the answer is no. And the emotional response to the hook version of cap and trade, which they'll call something totally different. They'll call it something like, oh, I don't know. Let's see. Let me pretend I'm a politician here, and I'm really thinking of this right now. I don't already have you know an idea of what this is going to be. They will call it something like, uh, I don't know, probably some crap like the Clean World Initiative. Okay? Something that hippies can feel good about. You know? Something that conservative Republicans can feel good about. Something that everybody looks at and goes, you know, maybe it's not exactly the way I wanted it, but how could this be bad? They get a tax cut for doing the right thing. You know? And that feel-good mentality will, will trickle down through the sheeple and they will open up the wallets. And they will play in the casino and they will think that they're rolling with the high rollers and you know where they'll really be. They'll be down on the bottom level playing nickel slots. And they'll think they're equivalent to the guy upstairs that's losing $5,000 a hand to blackjack or $50,000 a roll on the craps table and doesn't even care. Doesn't even care because the casino is going to comp him 
so well that even if he goes out at the end of the night losing a hundred grand, he's got two hundred dollars worth of value. That's what really happens at the top levels of this game, and that's what it is. Even where they lose, they win because they're hedged on both sides. And all the little guys down at the bottom that think they're making money for a while, that 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 mass accumulates, and when it goes away, when the money's lost, it's not gone. It's not created or destroyed. It's like matter. It only changes in form. And in this case, the form of who's holding it. And the people at the top have already exited. And that money, when they exit, you realize it was just a number in a computer, and the machine stopped spitting out quarters every other roll, and all of a sudden now you can't get any meat to machine at all. It's done. The casino closes its doors and throws your ass out. That's the false recovery I see coming. And I guess... I mean to make one final uh, point to you. This isn't good news. The fact that we could have two years, three years, or ten years of what looks like perceived prosperity is not good news. It's terrible news. It's going to have a dramatic, dramatic effect on the, on, the, on the actual problem in a very negative manner. A very, very negative manner. In fact... What it's going to be is the biggest trap ever set for the American people. It's going to lead to more pain, more anguish, more loss, more debt, more slavery, and more pain than anything that's ever occurred. I think problems that people have with my prediction is that because I say recovery in here, people think of it as a good thing. It's not a good thing. It's a chance to kick the inflation back on. And to do so in a way that the, the, the people having the big political party, see, the only way they can get out of this is with inflation with low interest rates. If they can inflate the money and double the, the, the devalue the money by half with, without a lot of inflation at the same time, which is almost impossible to do, but, but they, they're stupid and they think they can do it, what happens then is that effectively you cut the debt in half. And that's what their that's what their aim is now, is to increase revenues through taxation, hold inflation in check, but get the money to flow and not let the inflation run away. Right? So that the prices stay level even though the value of the money goes down. You think that's absolutely impossible. That's absolutely insane. Well you're right. It is impossible. It is insane. But what they can do by, or let me put it another way, all they have to do is try to get inflation to happen without rising interest rates. That's what's in their head, and they short term. But eventually, eventually they can't anymore because the value of the money is eroding so fast, you can't get any new investors in. So you got to create a different casino for them to play in, so that they have a, a huge winnings and they can throw the winnings into something safe like treasury notes, and that creates the new lending. And that's the game that they're trying to play. I'm, sa- I'm telling you, I think they can pull it off for a year or two or three or maybe four or five. I don't know how long. All I'm telling you is when you see this happen, protect yourself. And don't plan to use it until it shows up. In other words, don't make dumb decisions today because the false will come and give you another chance at the casino. Pretend I'm wrong. Pretend Gerald Salenti's right and the end of 2000 is the end of civilization as we know it when it comes to your prepping and being smart and intelligent with your money without going overboard and freaking out. But on the other side of it, 
when we start looking at mainstream media and they start telling you how the green shoots have turned into thriving plants or some other nonsensical metaphor they'll come up with, and you start to see all of these things I said come to fruition, stay smart then. There's always, and if I'm not right about this being the big crash at the end of this recovery, another recovery some point after that, before the really big one that sucks everything into oblivion and devalues the dollar to nothing, never fall for the recoveries. All they always are is a redistribution of wealth. That's what they come out to be. To take the wealth of the middle class and not move it to the poor. You put a little bit to the poor so it looks like that's what's happening. But it's to take the wealth of the middle class and move it to the hands of the elite. That's what's been going on. It's been going on almost since the creation of our country. It's really been going on since 1913 with the Federal Reserve. And the experts are right about one thing. on forever. Between now and 2050, we have a $103 trillion hole. Let me say the number again. $103 trillion hole. If we freeze spending at its current levels. And if we freeze interest rates at their current levels. And if productivity stays at least as high as it is now. If everything goes as good as it possibly can between now and 2050, we have a $103 trillion hole. There's not $103 trillion in total. We take every country's currency, everything in the world. There's not $103 trillion anythings out there. It's a number that defies logic. Somewhere in the middle, we're going to have to pay for this. And we're going to come up to a point where we can't pay for it. And at that point, the party ends. I'm just saying it's not tomorrow. Be careful and be smart. So what do you do about it? You make sure that you're investing your efforts into, produce, into things that produce for you. You make sure that you're paying that home off while you can. You make sure that you're finding that good piece of rural land while you can. You make sure that you're buying some gold and buying gold, holding on to it. No matter how high it goes, hold on to a little bit of it. There's always a good hedge there. You make sure that you're focusing on the ability to feed your family, to protect yourself, to keep shelter over your head, to be responsible for your own health. You focus on those things. And the world can fall apart around you. And anything short of a full end of the world as we know it, you can walk through it with very little pain if you're smart, because you control your life more than anybody else. I don't care how much the system is manipulated. I don't care how much the people at the top of the system really control things. I don't care how much of a puppet show and a magic show is going on. You're the one that chooses whether or not to watch the puppet show and whether or not to believe in the magic. You're the one that chooses to believe whether or not when some celebrity does something stupid on TV, whether we consider it cute or idiotic. And you're the one that decides whether idiotic is cute or not. It's not cute. And it's not up to the government. And some of you people that are in the Tea Party, and the Tea Party movement, and, you, and your bandwagon Republicans that are out there and think that our government needs to focus on changing the morals and value country, you're out of your mind. Because just because you get people in today and you give the government the authority by consent to improve the morals and values of this country while you like it, what you don't understand is how stupid people are and how eventually 
Other people will be in control, and then they'll have the power to change and shape the values of America. Won't that be freaking great? No, you focus on yourself. You focus on your family. You focus on the things that you actually control and don't give away that power. When you say that the government is supposed to do then you abdicate your capability to do it for yourself. You put it into somebody else's hands, and then... Then, you bitch when you don't like the result. That's what happens. It happens economically. It happens socially. It happens with debt. It happens with everything. We've become a nation where people blame everyone else. And some of you will listen to what I said earlier today and use it to blame other people. You don't get to do that anymore because you know the truth. Now that you know the truth, you don't get to blame anybody for your debt. Except you. You don't get to make anybody responsible for your stupidity. You. Responsibility is the greatest gift on the planet. Because when we accept responsibility, then we get control. But responsibility is also scary for people because you don't get to pass the buck and blame somebody else anymore for your problems. But it's a better way. It's a better way to live. You have more control over your life. And if you want to raise your children with a sense of responsibility, and I get that question all the time, Jack, how do we instill responsibility and values in our children? Live the responsibility. Live the values. How do you instill it in your neighbor? How do you convert your neighbor? Don't tell them. Show them. Do it. Be it. Act it. Control. Responsibility for yourself. Have a sense of honor. And when somebody tells you, that paying your debts is not a question of honor, tell them they're full of crap. Of course it's a question of honor. You're the one that signs your name. And that's like making a handshake. That's putting your word that you'll make good on what you do. So you do everything you can to make good on it. If you reach a point where you can't, you do everything you can to be as honorable as you can in your failure. But you don't look at it as somebody else's. If you bought a bunch of stocks and they went through the floor recently and somebody gets on TV and thinks he's funny and says, your 401k became a 201k, you shouldn't be thinking, yeah, he's right, look what they did to me. You should be thinking, this guy's an idiot. What the hell does that even mean? A 401k became a 201k. You take responsibility. You made those choices. My financial advisor told me to put him in. You're the one that did it. It wasn't done without your signature. It wasn't done without your consent. You're the one that chose to believe that someone else had a better insight than you, that had more control than you, that was more responsible for you, that was better informed than you. No, no, no. No more. You can't do it. Because whether I'm right or wrong about the false recovery, I'll tell you one thing. The constant pilfering of the American people by dumbing down their sense of responsibility and dumbing down their intelligence and dumbing down their education will not change. The form in which we will be pilfered will change and change and change. But the solution will always be individual responsibility, individual integrity, individual honor, and individual responsibility for our own education to pay attention to what the hell is going on and the ceasing of the abdicating of our responsibilities and our rights to others. When you give up your responsibilities, you also give up your rights. Rights and responsibilities are interconnected. They cannot be separated. If you want the right to free speech, you must protect it with a responsibility to see to it. And you must use it.
and every other right you can think of that's out there. Every other thing that you believe you have an entitlement to. And I don't lose entitlement in a negative way at this point. You have an entitlement to life. You have an entitlement to liberty. You have an entitlement to the pursuit, not guarantee, of happiness. You are entitled to those. So long as you live up to the responsibility to ensure, protect, and act upon them. The minute you take the responsibility for your life and give it to somebody else, your life is not yours anymore. The minute that you take your responsibility for controlling your wealth and give it to somebody else, the right to your wealth has passed from you. You, it is now a privilege because you've given up the responsibility. Because you don't pay attention. And as some of you do, and you feel like you're being yelled at, you're not being yelled at if you do these things. I'm yelling for you so that other people will hear you because you're saying them too. And if some of this stuff hits you the wrong way, you feel like that guy's a jerk and he doesn't know how hard it is. I know how hard it is. There was a time in my life with my first fiancé, to save up money to buy an engagement ring for, I slept in the back of my truck for two weeks while I was traveling to save up the money I would use on a hotel. Don't tell me I don't know how hard it is. Don't tell me I haven't sacrificed. I grew up in one of the poorest parts of the country still, the coal region of the Northeast. In fact, I grew up in the part of the coal region that doesn't really produce coal anymore. They even had that fallout from underneath it. So I know, I'm not talking down to anybody, I'm empowering you, I'm telling you that no matter what your station in life is, you control your future. Focus on that. And as for your children, demonstrate for them that that control exists, because that is one of the most empowering things in the world. And when you do that, they'll see how it empowers you, they'll want it. They may stray for a while, but like the prodigal son, they'll return. You'll be able to welcome with open arms. And they will strive for that same independence, responsibility, and liberty that you've demonstrated. You can talk to your blue in your face. But acting and doing is how you affect those around you. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life in times you get tough. Or even if they don't. can scream and you can holler it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent